Welcome to Episode 57 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by Doug Cantor, a uh, partner in Steptoe's Government Affairs and Public Policy Group. Uh, Doug, welcome. And uh, traditionally, uh, or at least uh, traditionally since you were last on the show, we've started asking people, what do you think was the story of the week? So the story of the week to me was the freak flaw uh, both because of the flaw itself, but I have to say, to me, the hidden story of the week is whoever names these various flaws, because they have found a way to capture people's imagination with hearts bleeding and, right. and freaks happening, and uh, it tremendously overshadows whatever the merits of any of these things may be to capture people's well, attention. Actually, I now have a rule that any vulnerability that has its own cute name and, and even worse, its own cute logo like Heartbleed is probably a phony. Uh, Heartbleed turned out to be less troubling than uh, uh, it uh, seemed. And frankly, this freak leak uh, uh, or uh, this, this freak vulnerability is probably being hyped for political purposes. And it's less scary, in my view, than, uh, than it's being made out. Uh, but uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll come back and talk about it. Uh, uh, we're also joined by Maury Schenk, who's a former managing partner at Steptoe's London office, and he's now an advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, he's also, uh, uh, this, I, I get tired just looking at his resume, a private equity investor and a director in technology companies. Uh, Maury, uh, welcome, and um, what's your idea of the story of the week? Thanks, Stuart. Uh, I'll vote, although it's not huge news for this uh, law firm cybersecurity alliance. You know, we're used to being advisors, but it's nice to see some other law firms getting involved as players, and hopefully it's something we'll think about joining at some point. Yeah, uh, you know, I actually tried to start something uh, about a year ago, uh, bringing clients and law firms together uh, around cybersecurity for law firms, uh, and I got a very polite but not very enthusiastic reaction, uh, uh, and so I'm glad somebody has picked that up. Uh, um, it's not that there's not a problem. It's just that I think people were reluctant to trust their competitors with their uh, their dirty laundry, which is the usual problem in this area until you've run them for a while. Uh, and our guest commentator uh, today is Congressman Mike Rogers, uh, 20 years of experience in uh, top-level national security positions from the Army to the FBI to uh, uh, election as a congressman and appointment as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, uh, and in uh, uh, probably a fit of good judgment, he's left Congress uh, and uh, is now a CNN uh, national security commentator, host of a nationally syndicated radio commentary for Westwood One, doing consulting and uh, some private equity investment, right? I am, absolutely. That's great. You got a, vo- a vote for the story of the week? Well, I would go back to last week and some of the details coming out on the Iranian hack of the Sands Casino and Resort. I think when you look at the details of that attack, that continues to highlight how the game has changed with nation states targeting individual American businesses. It, it is really interesting, uh, and I was struck by the almost casual way the DNI said, oh, yeah, yeah, we attribute that to Iran, uh, without there having been any of the drama around it that there was with Sony, uh, and yet it was at least as dangerous and as uh, probably more plausibly politically motivated than the Sony attack. And if you start thinking about what that means nationally, uh, so now there is not just a one-off on a Sony, there is a pattern of non-rational actor states engaged in cyber attacks on individual companies. Th- that should get a little bit of sweat on everybody's forehead. I completely agree. It's, uh, it's not, I'm not sure they're non-rational. They have nothing to lose with us. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they've done everything they can to piss us off, and we've done everything we can to hurt them, and they don't think that we are prepared to do much more. Uh, and by and large, you know, judging from uh, our actions, they're right. Well, if you look at uh, the at least the public reports that talked about Iran doing some very low-level probing of our financial services uh, companies uh, on the East Coast, and their consequence was absolutely nothing. Right. And well, that's a problem. We came to the bargaining table and started talking. Because exactly. uh, uh, 
I, it does seem to me that those sort of low-level attacks are a demonstration of capability, and if we can't stop those, the implication is that if they decided we were actually doing something actively harmful to their national security, they could do a lot worse. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so let's. Um, we're going to talk mainly today about uh, what's happening on the Hill and what's happening internationally. Uh, um, so uh, let's start out with some of the stories. Um, China tech policy has gotten tough in multiple ways. Uh, uh, one of them is uh, uh, to start looking at uh, uh, displacing U.S. tech companies, uh, and the other is to start. Uh, Living uh, uh, Jim Comey's dream uh, of forcing uh, tech companies to cough up access to otherwise secure communications uh, as a condition of doing business in uh, China. Uh, Maury, a lot of your investments are tied to China, so I know you followed this. Uh, uh, what does this mean? Well, I think this is pretty big news. As you said, it's part of a long-term trend of China getting tougher and tougher on foreign companies. These latest laws, we don't know all the details yet, but there's two being talked about. One is a so-called anti-terrorism law where the government is saying a variety of people might have to turn over encryption keys and provide backdoor access to their networks. Another is one that applies probably a little bit more narrowly, mainly to service providers to banks and possibly telecommunications companies, um, where it looks like they might have to turn over source code so they can be assessed for backdoors, um, which... U.S. companies presumably don't tend to do it, intend to do in the China IP environment. President Obama has gotten in the action, you know, complaining about this, and the Chinese government response has predictably been, um, you know, this is just business as usual. Everybody else does it. You know, Stuart, you and I in the 90s, we used to say with Kalea when we were trying to fight back the, the, the great breadth of it, uh, that the U.S. government was eventually going to get what it wished for from other companies and uh, countries and that that seems to be happening now not just in China. Yeah, I think that's right. We we, we, we the the most successful book I ever wrote was was about uh, foreign government regulation of encryption uh, uh which we turned into a uh a uh Download, downloadable set of uh, rules, basically a website with a bunch of resources uh, that kept up to date on all of the regulations in other countries on uh, uh, encryption. Uh, and people are still paying to keep track of all of that, uh, uh, which tells us that uh, uh, government regulation of encryption is not likely to go away. And, and governments are now doing this in all kinds of other areas. So this lawful... Um you know, lawful intercept capability, uh, data retention. China is our, you know, a huge trade partner, so we care about it. Russia, but Russia, Turkey are countries that are doing very similar things. So what, what, what the Chinese government is also going through a kind of uh, quasi uh, remalification uh, um, uh, process uh, uh, in which uh, uh, President Xi is. Uh, demonstrating an enthusiasm for some of the old uh, uh, control techniques uh, and uh, lack of enthusiasm for westernization. Uh, uh, what do you think all of this is going to add up to? Is this really an effort to say we don't need any Western technology and we're going to exclude it all because it won't serve our governmental purposes? I that seems to be the direction now, but I don't think it's going to go all the way there for the simple reason that China remains a much bigger exporter than it is an importer. And I don't, I think it's probably against its interest to get it in itself into a huge trade war. That said, um, shutting down, you know, the remalification, as you put it, is a real trend. Um, the, with, with some of the public concerns in China, including about things about corruption and pollution, um, the Chinese Communist Party isn't very popular, and they want to shut down on public access to information and, and be able to monitor the public to monitor threats to themselves. It's very hard to tell how all this is going to play out, but it's probably the biggest issue for China at the moment. So if you were representing Cisco, Intel, McAfee, IBM, uh, what would you tell them is the best strategy to try to defeat this? I would say there's not a strategy. You know, I would say you've got to go in and sit down, you know, assess who the, the power players are and assess the situation on a dynamic basis. 
China is really about who you know, what deals you can cut, what relationships. They have a word called guan guanxi, which essentially means relationships and influence, which is having the right guanxi is incredibly important. There, there was a report this week that Apple has done some kind of deal with the Chinese government, which remains secret. But I think a lot of other people are going to do these nuanced deals. Well, that uh, uh, sounds like the opportunity for foreign corrupt practices prosecutions for another generation. <laughs> well, probably they shouldn't pay the government, but we'll, uh, okay, uh, all right. Uh, um, and uh, Mike, obviously, there's there's some real national security issues around this. Uh, um, what do you think um, is the likely congressional reaction to all of this? Well, I think Congress has been a little slow to react, and and this isn't a new phenomenon. When you're when they're asking for your source code mm-hmm. uh, before you introduce a product in China, has been going on a while. Matter of fact, in chip manufacturing, including phone and telecommunications gear, the Chinese, as a part of a requirement of having a Chinese partner, were also requiring source code access. Uh, this has been a huge fight for years. And I think Congress is just going to be, continue to be slow. And I think it's because, well, for what Maury says, people are afraid of a trade war. Uh, my fear only is, yes, today they are an export economy. Uh, in 20 years, they'll be uh, in a, a consumer economy. What happens then? Right. They've built this whole thing on kleptocracy, right. you know, stealing intellectual property, uh, really kind of forcing companies to do behavior in the marketplace they wouldn't normally agree to. That means once they we've lost complete leverage of their economy, it doesn't matter what we say. My argument is we have to fix this problem now, why they are an export economy, why we still have leverage. Uh, again, I, I, I wouldn't wait on Congress to do this. Um, I think we're going to have to step up our game, and more companies are going to have to be willing to say we're not turning over our keys to do business there. Yeah. Tough decision, but I think it has decision. to be I think it has to happen. Okay. Uh well, uh it, this wouldn't be the Stepto Cyber Law podcast without a reference to Edward Snowden. Uh he was in the news again saying uh, he'd love to come to, back to the United States if he thought he could get a fair trial, which he immediately said he didn't think he could get, uh, but there was a hint that there's some negotiations uh, underway and have been for some time. Uh he also said um in a, a call with the uh, or a speech to a Swiss, Swiss group that he loves Switzerland. He'd love to come to Switzerland. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that, uh, tweeting some of the things that he said when he thought he was anonymous and when he was just this uh, uh, youngster who had arrived in Geneva uh, to work for the CIA uh, and on a uh, a website uh, where he was uh, described as the true hoo-ha. That was his uh, screen name. He said uh, to people, uh, uh, to the guys who've been razzing him for looking gay, he said, you can't say I look gay anymore. I'm the straightest looking guy in Switzerland. Uh, This country is nightmarishly expensive and horrifically classist, and I have never ever seen a people more racist than the Swiss. Um, I just thought, you know, um, you're enthusiasm for the Swiss depend on, you know, where, you, where you're comparing it to. So they must look good next to Moscow. What a, what a difference a year with the KGB or the FSB or the SVR makes. Huh? It's clear he's got a campaign going. He wants to get out, uh, and he's dying to find a way out. Uh, uh, and he'll obviously never put it as bluntly as that. But the fact that he's making this pitch to two different places suggests that, uh, yeah, this is not turning out quite as, as well as he'd hoped. Well, clearly. Although I don't see either of those two places as being very likely. You know, he said his negotiations with the U.S. are not about not getting the death penalty, among other things, which maybe he can be successful in that, but he's going to have a hard time avoiding staying out of jail for a very long time if he comes to the U.S., and I I don't think that that's what he probably wants. Switzerland apparently has applied for asylum in 20-some countries. I can't see Switzerland being the one that says, yes, they've got some you know, some image problems with uh, banking secrecy and stuff and being the home of Edward Snowden is probably not something they want to add to their public image. Uh, that's my guess. Is it, it, he's he's actually not wrong about their lack of enthusiasm for foreigners, um, surprisingly, considering how many foreign organizations operate there. Uh, um, uh, so uh, my guess is they, they, you know, he'd have to have a lot more money to be welcome there. Uh, uh, but uh, um, meanwhile, back at in the U.S., he's uh, 
the, the program he is most associated with, the uh, 215 metadata program that the NSA has uh, uh, been running and which certainly has attracted a lot of unfavorable attention, nonetheless continues. And it was um, re-opt until June 1 by the FISA court, uh, uh, which really means there are there's kind of a double witching hour. Uh, not only uh, does the order run out on June 1, but uh, so does the authority for uh, FISA 215 unless Congress acts. So the question is, uh, we're now in March. Um, you know, in January, you could say, oh, June 1, long way away, but it's not a long way away. Uh, Doug, uh, uh, what's your assessment about where we're going to be? Uh, is that any hope? I mean, this really requires that Congress actually do something as opposed to fail to do something. It is, and we got some indication with Congress at least being able to avoid a homeland security shutdown that they may be willing to do some things. The road there was incredibly rocky, but there was, at the end, a majority of people saying, you know what, we can't shut down the department. So there may be at least the seeds of a way that this Congress works together coming up. The thing that's interesting to me on this issue specifically is there will obviously be a number of folks uh, in the Democratic Party, both House and Senate, who will be staunch opponents of this provision no matter what. Right. This is playing out, though, in the Republican presidential primary po- political election with Rand Paul staking out a position against it. And and and, who, who, and Cruz and Rubio both staking out a position for it. I think that will play in an interesting way. By the way, obviously all three of those presidential aspirants are senators as well, right. and so will have vote, vote. So, so when this comes up. They knew they were going to take a position. They might as well they, take. A they position. knew they would have to. The other uh, folks uh, in the presidential field will have to take a position because they are. Um, and so I think that will send some real messages to a Republican Party in the House and Senate uh, and what they're going to do, where you have a Democratic president who will want it, right? even though much of his uh, caucus, both House and Senate, will have their doubts. You ought so, to be able to deliver half the, the, uh, the caucus, don't you think? I think that's being optimistic okay. on this issue. Okay. Um, you have, you I, will t- I will say that uh, if you – I think it was November of last year. It may have been crept into December. There was a vote on the 215 program to require that you had to get a warrant for right. anything overseas, a U.S. warrant by a U.S. federal judge on interceptions overseas believed to be terrorist activity. Which is a total transformation of our intelligence community. Well, it would kill. It would have, fundamentally, it would end it because it's nearly impossible to put that, uh, in the, in, in a, you know, eight and a half by eleven piece of paper in front of a judge that gets you to a and comfort level of this. It, it passed overwhelmingly. So this is a big concern of mine and I, I, most people were, I think, voting in ignorance, right. candidly. And I don't know if that's going to change going in because the narrative, we got behind the narrative in Congress for those of us who supported this program when it was classified, by the way, and I support it when it's not classified. Um, we got behind the political narrative, and I think that's what is causing us some trouble. It certainly was, I think, uh, you couldn't find a better example of, of that vote. There was a 10-minute, literally 10-minute debate, both for and against, on that 10 minutes to, to vote on something as consequential as our ability to intercept a phone call from Syria to fill in the blank from to the Bronx right. uh, so that we could say, whoop, terrorists overseas calling somebody in the United States, we might want to get a warrant on this end of it. They would require a warrant on the other end. That's an impossible standard. So, But invoking Syria tells us what's changed, too, right? They're, they're, they're burning people alive in a safe haven now, uh, and Americans have noticed and are worried again about terrorism. And I think that has changed the nature of the debate, or, or I don't think Ted Cruz would have uh, come out uh, in favor of uh, uh, 215. Uh, uh, and so I wonder, do you think people will take the opportunity to reconsider this, maybe tweak 215 in some way, and then pass it? Um, or it's, it's it's a very easy issue to de- demagogue. But uh, if I were if I were Republican leadership, I would not want the president to be able to say, "I wanted to protect you, but the Republicans in Congress wouldn't let me." 
No, it's a bad political spot, both for leadership, but you also have, you know, the Jim Sensenbrenners who have t- made this a personal point of pride to kill 215. Yeah. Um, and he will have an outsized voice in this next go-round. Because he passed 215 the first time. Right. Right. And lays claim that he, the law did not do what he intended or, or authored it to do. Um, I love Jim Sensenbrenner, but none of that, uh, I think, comports with the facts. 215, uh, you know, has plenty of oversight. It, had, it was functioning exactly the way it was intended to focus. And by the way, your personal information was far more protected, locked up in the basement of the NSA with a warrant to get into it, than it's going to be back at the phone companies. Right. So their very basis of their argument, I think, is flawed. Uh, however, they won the, the moment of the day by saying, Government records your phone calls and puts them in a basement, and they can listen to them anytime they want. Yeah, which simply is wrong. And we had members of the United States House of Representatives make that case on the House floor. Oh God! I mean, it's just shocking to me. And that's if if we had an honest debate on the facts, most Americans would say, "I'm not even sure what we're fighting over." Keep doing it. Keep doing the oversight. Don't let them get out of bounds. Have at it. All right. So, but you're uh, you're actually. It sounds like pretty worried that this might not happen. I am worried because they're going to use the deadline to their advantage. And so you can also have a 215 bill that is functionally doesn't work. Right. And uh, So you write something crappy, pass it, and say, oh, yeah, we solved the problem. We solved the problem. See, I was for it, but I cared more about your civil liberties than the guy sitting next to me, yeah. apparently. And you'll, get, you'll see this political debate start, and it already has. And the advantage, that's why you say advantage the Jim Sensenbrenner faction because of the deadline. Mm-hmm. Right. It will go away on June 1st. So the responsible folks who, who understand the consequences of that will be making the case, we better do something. We better get something. Right. Or it's going to go away completely. And then we're dark. That's interesting. So I, 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 I was more uh, optimistic that uh, no one would want to let the deadline pass with nothing because that would look like they had basically killed a, a terrorism protection. Uh, um, but you're right. Uh, it's easy to write something that uh, sounds like you were protective uh, of uh, uh, against terrorism, and it doesn't really work. Exactly. Yeah. If you were requiring a warrant on someone who's in Raqqa, Syria today, yeah. it, it, it is functionally not going to work. Yeah, that's that's the end of the world for uh, uh, intelligence gathering, uh, or nearly. Um, okay, well, um, let's let's shift to uh, Europe uh, uh, and uh, focus a little on the EU data protection uh, uh, bill. It has three processes to go through. It goes through first the European Commission, which is the grand bureaucracy, and then it goes to the Parliament, which uh, votes on it but doesn't quite vote on it, mostly kind of comments on it. Uh, uh, and then it goes to the uh, the member governments who uh, rewrite it and then send it uh, back to uh, Parliament, if I remember right. Uh, and apparently uh, there are some leaked documents that suggest that data protection direct, uh, regulation is getting more than just a haircut uh, in the um, uh, deliberations among the governments. Uh, Maury, did you follow that? Do you know uh, what those leaked documents actually say? Well, there's there's some um, indication of what the changes might be. Um, what is clear, and they're saying publicly, is the whole process is going to be delayed quite a bit, that there wouldn't be agreement because of the process you were alluding to at least until 2016, and the law then wouldn't come in force until uh, 2018, and it may take longer. So I suspect a lot of things will change. In terms of the substance, though, I think, you know, some of the main things that have been proposed, like one-stop shop for data protection, uh, which helps companies, bigger fines, which uh, probably gets U.S. Internet companies a bit scared, um, because they've been major targets, that will probably stay in there, and breach, broader breach reporting uh, for cyber breaches. What I think might change is um, right to be forgotten, which the European Court of Justice has acted on, and I, I suspect that that will get left with the court, although who knows, maybe they'll try to legislate more on it. I, I hope not. And there's been a talking, talking about toughening up the consent rights under the existing data protection legislation. You know, Stuart, I don't hate data protection as much. Well, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I as you can't hate it more than I do. 
I, I like it a little better than you do as a European citizen, but there's been a pretty good accommodation around the current uh, system. And Europe, Europe isn't creating any great Internet companies, and people complain about this. And, you know, pe- people should ask, isn't it because it's not a very hospitable environment? That Europe can't have it both ways. And I think maybe people are starting to realize that from, you know, a private company perspective. Uh, on the public side, as we said before on this podcast, one of the um, uh, one of the effects of the Snowden revelations, rather beyond the public outcry, has been governments saying, "I want more of that capability." And so, the other bit of this data protection process has been to restrict how European governments can process information for law enforcement purposes and otherwise. And I think that's starting to be cut back really significantly, because governments don't want to be restrained in the way that we've just been talking about uh, regarding Section 215. No, that's. I think that's that's right. Well, uh, the the Obama administration has proposed its own version of data protection regulation, sort of a general framework for uh, handling uh, private data in the private sector. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, I I I thought about tweeting the uh, the reaction, but uh, after you say DOA, you still you still have thirty seven character one hundred and thirty seven characters left. Uh, um, Doug. Uh, is it really just as, as completely dead as I think? It is. Uh, what's interesting about the Obama administration's proposal on this is everyone hates it. Yeah, the, the, the privacy and people hate it just as much as, uh, as uh, the, uh, uh, the industry. That's right. And, and everyone hates it, though, about equally, which you would often in a legislative context say, well, gee, this may be a pretty good compromise if everyone hates it about equally. The problem with this administration, I think it's emblematic of their approach on a lot of issues, is they went and did this themselves behind closed doors and figured out the place where everyone would hate it about equally, which, right, in theory is the right landing place. They completely missed the process. Neither their allies or their enemies were brought into the conversation. So nobody was tired of arguing and uh, uh, ready to accept something because it's better than nothing. Uh, Instead, they were presented with this thing and and said, do you like it? And, of course, nobody liked it. That's right. Nobody had gone through the work to where you get to an end product and say, gee, we see where the other side gave and where we gave, and now we're ready. So I used to criticize NSA uh, because I said the problem with NSA uh, guys is they're engineers, and they keep getting these political problems, and they try to engineer an optimized solution. Uh, and not surprisingly, when that's when your first offer is the optimized solution, the negotiation is going to take you well away from that. And uh, um, it, 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 ironically, it looks as though the Obama administration handed this one off to the engineers as well. Well, and again, as a, somebody who, who tried to work with the administration on these issues, including 215, of which I supported their position, yeah. by the way, uh, the problem was when it became public, I wasn't sure what his position was anymore. Yeah. And, and it changed. And that's, that's the difficulty in working with the administration on these issues. And they are very, very insular. They have a very small group of people. Um, they'll come out with their proclamations. And unfortunately, uh, Doug, I think you said it best. They just, they miss the process of getting people to buy in first to the problem, then to the solution. They miss all of that. And so nothing, none, nothing that they put out, I think, is going to be greeted warmly by any side. And the last piece of this, and more, uh, I'm interested in your opinion, the safe harbor provisions, uh, when I was in Brussels last year, was target number one. They were certainly trying to brush back. I walked away from those meetings, including uh, at the commission, believing this was more about product protection. They wanted those, that data stored on European servers. Not, well, not so that they could have European jobs tending the European service. Exactly. At the same time, by the way, we were having those discussions. The French voted that they didn't even need a warrant if they had a terrorist suspect to get data at rest in France. So I just I find all of their arguments pretty thin gruel. Yeah, the the the, the European approach to this, you know, and and the safe harbor is is, is a good example, is to sell the United States the same goat about 30 times. It's just astonishing how often we feel, oh, we got to negotiate with them because they're unhappy about data protection. Uh, They're always unhappy and they're always ready to negotiate, especially if you'll give them something for something they already gave away. Uh, um, So, yeah, uh, and there is a very heavy element of 
protectionism that's just below the surface, oh, sure. uh, uh, which is why actually Maury's argument is the most compelling, the one that says, you know, you should get rid of your data protection law because it's killing your Internet industry, which right. is certainly true. You know, one of the interesting comments on that, uh, before you go, Maury, is that um, I was a very senior member of the of the European Commission. When we were pushing back, they were giving us a hard time. I was there uh, after the NSA mm-hmm. leaker uh, problem, trying to get all of that addressed and trying to get all on the same page. And I kept reminding the European Commission that they needed to go back to their state's intelligence services and find out what they're doing find out the kind of intelligence that they're engaged in. I think it would be very enlightening for them. And the quote at the end of the day was, well, we don't have any authority as the European Commission on our state intelligence services, and we can't regulate them, but we can regulate you. <laughs> well, only because we let them. Uh, all right, last, uh, we've, we've, so we've killed off 215, uh, we've killed off data, the, the U.S. privacy uh, law. We've postponed uh, data protection into uh, 2017, 2018. Uh, the last piece of legislation that's kicking around is information sharing, and there's a bill out of the uh, Senate Intelligence uh, Committee on information sharing, which has already run into a buzzsaw of privacy objections. Uh, uh, Doug, uh, what's your guess about whether we're going to see something on information sharing? And then we'll ask uh, uh, the congressman. I think they're going to have trouble reconciling uh, legislation, House, Senate, administration. Every time the privacy advocates come out uh, on this legislation and criticize it, the administration has uh, backed the, the privacy hawks, and that's going to be a problem. Th- there's just uh, tremendous practical difficulties for business in sharing this information, and if you don't make it easy to do and ensure that there aren't liability concerns, it's not going to work. And I think most of the folks advocating for the legislation realize that um, I'm not sure the administration does at this point. So I, yeah, my sense is that the, the privacy groups in particular, by saying uh, we want to regulate the way in which we're going to force private industry to strip out information that might be relevant at considerable expense, uh, under some threat of liability, um, if they don't do it right, uh, that's 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 a non-starter because they don't have to do so, it now to share information with each other. So, yeah, and this was the biggest stumbling block as somebody who authored the, the bill in in two consecutive Congresses uh, and with huge bipartisan support, by the way, in the House mm-hmm. of Representatives, and it always stalled in the Senate. The the biggest problem was exactly that: who ha- who is responsible for stripping out the PII? Now, I argued that the most effective way to do that and get the most buy-in was to let the people who know how to do it every single day, which was the NSA. Mm -hmm. They know how to strip out PII. They do it. And they can do it and have the capability to do it at the scale of which you need to do it. Right. And it could be a check in the system. There are some U.S. companies who said, yeah, we can strip out PII and still share. That's great. But every time you limit the buy-in, you limit the success of our ability to stop malicious source code across networks. So this is the big problem. I think there is a way we can get uh, an agreement, or they could have gotten an agreement or could get an agreement. But the president has to be willing to sit down and actually <clears throat> excuse me, talk to someone. And they need to talk to the people who are trying to promote the, the liability provisions in the law uh, and the uh, protection of PII. I think there's a way to get this deal done. The privacy people can never be for a liability protection bill. They cannot do it. We should understand that going in. I don't care what they agree to behind the door. When it is publicly disclosed, they cannot be for it. Uh, It's really hard to send out a letter to your member saying you're protecting their privacy if there's this confusing liability sharing bill of which they say they agree with. Well, and as long as one privacy group says it's a disaster, then all the others look like wimps if they support it, like they're selling out their membership, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. It's a huge problem. They they, they have to keep moving the the goalposts so that they can, you know, the the best you're going to get is, well, uh, it's not as bad as some other things we've seen. That's, that's right. If you can get that far. Right. And, and I, apparently listen, we I've tried to work with those <laughs> privacy groups for two sessions. Um, gave them amendments in the bill. Yeah. And the day it was introduced, they called back and said, well, we're, we're pulling ourselves off. When I asked them why, I won't tell you which group. When I asked them why, and they said, well, 
exactly your point. Yeah. Plus, other folks weren't uh, weren't as giddy about the the accommodations. So what, what they were basically saying, I can't be for anything. The, that's right. I was astonished that the president actually issued a veto threat over your draft, if I remember right, and and I, over language that, I, if I remember right, was in his original proposal, uh, or pretty close to it. I. Uh, do you think that this is just an inability to separate the White House staff from the privacy groups? Again, and they're, they just, they are so bad about working with Congress. Yeah. I, it's, it's shockingly bad. I may have never seen, and by the way, this isn't just me, a Republican talking. These, my, I worked very close with my Democrat colleague, or I wouldn't have gotten right. a huge bipartisan vote, obviously. We couldn't, uh, from both of, I tried, he would go at him, I'd go back at him. We could get them to engage. They were so terrified of the privacy groups that they weren't going to budge. And so you're seeing the same problem now in the Senate. You know, we're for we're for you know liability sharing. Congress should act, but but boy, be careful on what you do. Yeah. Well, that is a terrible way to actually get something that we can actually that will function. It's funny. I I always thought it was easier in the White House to negotiate with a Congress of the other party than the. Congress of your own party, because it's your own party. There's all these personality issues and turf and uh, uh, other issues. Are you saying you there's to... egos in Congress? <laughs> or is that what you're saying? I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked. <laughs> all right. Well, I can't top that. Uh, I, um, that will wrap up our, our news roundup, and then I, uh, if I can, uh, I'll ask Mike Rogers about a couple of other uh, uh, topics. Uh, um, you are um, famous for the very detailed, thoughtful, uh, uh, but controversial report on Huawei uh, that came out of um, uh, the House Intelligence Committee uh, uh, when you were chairman. Uh, what do you think the long-term impact is of that, and uh, um, do we have the policy tools to deal with the problems that you identified there? Yeah, one of the things that came out of that, it was about an 18-month investigation that I ordered uh, on behalf of the Intelligence Committee, was that, uh, A, clearly the, the, uh, their two leading uh, telecommunications companies, Huawei and ZTE, were connected to the, to the government, both military and civilian intelligence agencies in the government. Mm-hmm. So some notion that that was not true is just wrong. Uh, secondly, the Constitution of China reads that if you're a Chinese company operating in America and they ask for any piece of information, you are obligated to give it under the law. So we fool ourselves. I know it's the gold rush of China, but we like to pretend we don't see these things uh, and to our own peril in the future. So I felt it was important to get to the facts. Could we show that, in mm-hmm. fact, that was the case? And, and we did both in the uh, unclassified and the classified reports, very strong. Matter of fact, the Australians used our report to ban Huawei from their government networks, uh, which I thought was which was an accomplishment in and of itself. But it did show that CFIUS cannot accommodate this new global economy that we have. Right. Um, now, CFIUS, that's a problem. Half our, our audience at least knows what CFIUS is. It's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It reviews new incoming investments in existing companies. But if you just want to expand your business by starting up in the United States or selling products to the United States, there's no regulation for national security purposes at all. Yeah. No, it's very concerning. And you think about what the effort of Huawei was. They wanted to control all the pipes in the United States. So every piece of information <clears throat> that flowed through the pipes in the United States would have to go through Chinese pipes, basically. They would control both ends of that equation. Right. Now, if you're an intelligence service, that is a dream come true. Uh, and we were very close to just saying, have at it, because you know what? We can save ourselves half the price. Right. I don't think we thought through what the consequences were. Yeah. Now, some people say, uh, but, you know, uh, doesn't the United States spy on China? Why are we on our high horse about this? Well, we don't, uh, and this is very, very important. Our United States intelligence services do not steal intellectual property for the purposes of commercialization. It's against the law. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of oversight, including the, uh, you know, the oversight committee that I served on, as well as uh, IG oversight uh, and internal reviews to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen. It does not happen. China has built its economy on stealing intellectual property overseas. You're going to put every piece of intellectual property on their pipes? Are we crazy? 
Nice. We almost did it. And so there's a huge difference. Does the United, I believe in spying. I believe in trying to figure out, you know, are, do, how many nuclear weapons do they have? Are they going to use nuclear weapons? What's their doctrine to use nuclear weapons? Why are they amassing troops in certain areas? Why are they putting uh, quiet submarines in the straits uh, of Taiwan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of those are important questions we want our spies to know because it can stop conflict. Right. The way the Chinese operate is completely different from that. So we have to protect ourselves in a way that acts differently than the way we would do it. So I, this, this brings up the question of cyber war, right, um, more generally. Uh, and we talked about this, uh, uh, we'll come back to the, what you thought was the uh, hot story of the, uh, the month, I guess, uh, which is uh, uh, the fact that um, not only are there foreign governments stealing secrets, which is bad enough, it's, it's quite a, a change in our uh, uh, world, uh, but now uh, the countries that have nothing to lose have decided that uh, breaking and sabotaging our companies is uh, a good tactic. Uh, um, where does this end? How vulnerable are we? What should our strategy be to try to uh, roll back this risk? Well, if you think about uh, if they, w- if if North Korea had sent saboteurs to the server farm of Sony and blown it up, we would have all clearly come to the conclusion this is an act of terrorism or an act of war. Very clear. I don't. Th- would, mm-hmm. I don't think we would have gotten a debate in the room had that been the case. What's the difference if they do it on a keyboard, uh, five thousand miles away, and accomplish the same thing? We have to ask ourselves some really and really hard questions. And by the way, we are not prepared to answer this question. The policy review that we've talked about in the entire four years I was chairman tried to get get answers to these questions, and we could never find consensus. It's really difficult. So I, I've, I've always been, first this too damn many lawyers talking about this, and you know, is it an act of war under the UN Convention? Uh, who cares? Uh, really, the question is, does it hurt us bad enough for us to feel we ought to respond to it uh, uh, in a uh, significant and dramatic way? Uh, and we could have done that to Sony. Uh, I thought, you know, there was some, there's some possibility that something happened quietly that none of us knew about, but the announcement of sanctions was you know, sort of pitiful, uh, the sanctions on a, an intelligence agency that uh, isn't likely to show up uh, in anybody's bank accounts. Um, so obviously what we've done publicly is not sufficient, uh, and uh, attacking the North Korean Internet is sort of a joke. Uh, uh, All so six people that have exactly. electricity would be impacted. <laughs> it would be terrible. So wh- <laughs> what kinds of things should we be doing? I guess the one thing that we did do is we named and shamed, and uh, we showed that we knew who it was, which means that uh, if it had been more dramatic or we had a more determined response that we knew where, what the return address for that response should be. Exactly. And so I look at it, two, this is a two-pronged front. One, we have to have our defenses ready. Mm-hmm. 85% of our networks in America are private sector networks. The government, contrary to popular belief, the NSA does not monitor those networks. Right. And so they are vulnerable to nation-state attacks just like this. And if you think about it, North Korea had to send people out of their country uh, in order to amass the capability to perform the attack, number one. And number two, all of this was open uh, and available on the Internet, both the dark net uh, and the open Internet, they just pieced together all of these known uh, malicious source code configurations to form an attack that was successful. Mm-hmm. That ought to, again, that, and by the way, they had a cybersecurity company at Sony. This wasn't, they, they didn't, right. were not completely unprepared. This is a problem for all of us. And so make, should, should the NSA be allowed to try to defend in a way you can on the internet mm-hmm. uh if you know north korea is up to something or china i would argue yes we have to get there and we have to get there in a hurry number one but but we also have to provide a defense if someone goes and flicks somebody in the head in cyberspace for a bad activity they're not going to attack the nsa they're going to go attack company you know the sands resort casino or a sony or fill in the blank who if you if a nation state wants to cause you trouble they're going to cause you trouble you can't have individual companies fighting nation states. We would never accept it in any other venue uh, when it comes to uh, nations uh, engaging in destructive behavior. So I, my impression was that 
that the creation of this threat integration center uh, uh, that the president announced is really, in, in some respects, it's it, it's a uh, an encouraging sign because if I, to the extent I can make sense of it, it is designed to bring all intelligence to bear and, and analysis to bear on the question of who's doing this and what should we do about it? Uh, because they realized that they they had a bunch of people who said, yes, I'm in charge of this piece of, of cyber defense, but nobody who could bring all of that together and give the president a kind of a com- complete view of his options. And I think that's what this is designed to do. Uh, but you may I like have- your optimism. Okay. <laughs> I love your optimism. I call this the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> we have a cyber center at the CIA, a cyber center at NSA, a cyber center at Cyber Command at the NSA, uh, a cyber center at the uh, uh, the Pentagon. Now we're going to have a cyber oh, center. Don't forget, don't forget DHS and, and DHS FBI. has a cyber center <laughs> and an FBI has a cyber center. Yeah, you're right. And by the way, so do uh, there are smaller cyber centers in NGA and NRO, right? Because they have some right. certain lanes that they need to protect. So I get all of that. Then what we're doing now is laying over top of that a cyber center right. for the cyber centers so that we can get a good cyber center picture to the president of the United States. It just makes me scratch my head a little bit and ask, if it were exactly what you said, I could be for that. Is that what it is? I don't know. Yeah, it's a little um, bit mysterious. It's a little mysterious, and if it's not real time, our problem now is we have real-time attacks. We need to attack them with real-time response. Does this give us real-time response? No, it doesn't. What it's going to do, is, is my understanding, is compile threat matrices. Okay, that's valuable, right? right? I don't know if we need a whole cyber center to do it. Couldn't you have a coordinator that brings it all together? But what we really need is a real-time defense. That's why that liability provision, uh, uh, protection bill is so important because that's what gets you real-time, machine-to-machine, zeros and ones flying at each other you know, millions of times a second. Uh, and if we can get protection at that, we can beat back this problem in a very significant way. If it's a cyber center that sends a memo to the president, get more, get ready for more Sony's, more Sands Casinos, and God forbid some financial institution. The, the, the best uh, description of the intelligence community that I ever had when I was in it was a guy who said, uh, imagine you're driving 60 miles an hour down a one-lane road in uh, the mountains, uh, uh, and there's a guy in the back who occasionally hands you five-page memos. That's the intelligence community. <laughs> All right. Uh, last, last question. Uh, you've now been out. I yeah. uh, and uh, uh, how do you like your new life? What do you like about it? What do you um, wish you were still doing? Well, as I say, I miss the clowns, but not the circus yeah. uh, of Congress. I mean, clearly, being chairman was one of the highlights of my my professional career, uh, overseeing all sixteen agencies, every national security debate that happened in the last ten years. I you know I was a part of that. Uh, I've got my PhD on a PhD for understanding intelligence operations yeah. and, and the configuration of all of our resources. So that part, um, was just a, an, really an incredible uh, gift to me and a, and a blessing and I enjoyed every bit of it. It was an honor and a privilege. Um, but I was ready for a switch in the gears. So, uh, this gives me an opportunity. I have a daily radio commentary. It's on every major market in the country to talk about, uh, things I think are important. Uh, and it runs three times a day. And who doesn't want to hear me three times a day? Absolutely. Right? Who doesn't want to do that? Uh, the national security uh, contributor role at CNN allows me to stay current and still allow, I hope, a rational voice on national security issues, yep. uh, which I think we need desperately. Uh, and I'm, I'm doing some uh, some advisory work on, uh, matter of fact, I've joined Trident, is forming a new fund oh, on cool. cybersecurity uh, uh, companies for a VC fund. They've asked me to be advisor for that and help them do some evaluation. Oh, that's so that's exciting. That is that is really very very exciting stuff. Uh, and so I'm enjoying every bit of it. I'm also doing the speaker thing through the Washington Speakers Bureau and uh, having fun at driving that message across America. And so that's I, I really have enjoyed the opportunity. It's a different platform. And candidly, talking to millions of people a week um, about things I think are important, like national security, in a way that's hopefully interesting. 
uh, is in a way a bigger platform. Seems yeah. odd, but it's a bigger platform. No, I, I, I think that's right. First, you can, you can be a little more colorful. Yes. I, and, uh, uh, it is your job to talk about that and to express it colorfully as opposed to your job being to fundraise and to go back yeah. and, 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 uh, you know, cut ribbons. Uh, so, um, you can do it in a, very focused way. Uh, uh, so, uh, um, although, you know, I always used to say to people who had left government, I said, well, the good news is now you can say what you want because the bad news is nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm for congestion now. You're stuck in the car a little longer. Yeah. That's a good thing. In my day. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Uh, well, you, you, uh, last question. Do you have uh, any upcoming events uh, that uh, or speeches that we should know about? Well, I have a whole host. The the one big announcement we have coming up, I've also uh, uh, started a group called Americans for Peace, Prosperity, and Security that is gauged in uh, grassroots organizations in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina that will drive the national security debate. No longer will you be able to show up in Iowa and say, I'm for Israel, uh, Putin is bad, and we need to do something about ISIS. Let's talk about uh, ethanol. Uh, we're going to have an in-depth conversation because on January 21st, the President of the United States, whoever that is, uh, is going to face international challenges probably like no other president has faced walking in the door, and you don't get that first-term honeymoon about only dealing with domestic issues. No, and if it's a Republican, if the, the, the president is a Republican, he's going to come into this with almost no prior uh, experience in this field. So this will drive their staffing decisions. It will des- to, uh, drive their uh, ability to talk layered on national security. There's lots of nuance yeah. uh, in national security. So we announced our advisory board in Iowa. That is a fantastic board. Every presidential candidate would love that uh, advisory board in Iowa. And we're getting next month, we're going to announce New Hampshire. So we're very excited about oh, it. Oh, that's terrific. What a yep. great uh, and, um, and and a, a, a very strategic choice of places to do it. Yeah, uh, we thought they would be interesting <laughs> places to have advisory boards talking about national security. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Doug Cantor, uh, Maury Shank, thank you as well. Uh, this was great. Uh, and as a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to uh, feedback. Send your questions, suggestions for interview candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you'd like to leave a message by phone, you can uh, do that at 202-862-5785. Uh, uh, we um, don't have a progress report, but I can tell you that sometime in the next two months, uh, the Cyber Law Podcast will go walkabout. Um, we are going to uh, uh, find a way to uh, have some of these interviews occur outside of uh, uh, the Stepto uh, conference room. Uh, um, and uh, for those of you who follow me, I will be at South by Southwest uh, uh, next week, uh, Monday, uh, uh, doing um, another Snowden debate, uh, and then at Case Western at the end of the week, talking about uh, digitization and the border, particularly with Canada. Uh, this has been Episode 57 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we're going to have Andy Osmond from DHS's um, uh, cyber uh, office, uh, and after him, uh, Richard Beitlich, uh, who is the chief security strategist at FireEye, Jason Brown, who's a special agent at the Secret Services Criminal Investigator Division, and a host of others. We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.